Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. If you'd like to follow along inside the text, you can find a fully vowelized PDF of the DAF at www.batshevalearningcenter.com slash DAF. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We are going to be learning DAF Lamed Gimel of Masech Saita today. As you remember, we um, are going through the examples in the Mishnah of things that can be said in any language, not just Hebrew. We are now up to tefillah. That's what we're going to be discussing today. All right, so we're Daf Lamad Gimel Ahmed Aleph, seven lines from the top of the page, um, like the third word on the line right after the first set of two dots. So tefillah. Tefillah was listed as one of the things in the Mishnah which can be said in any language. Um, so as the Mishnah, as the Gemara did on the previous Ahmad, it's going to set out to prove it. How do we know that tefillah can be said in any language? So the Gemara says... We don't even need a pasuk, right? All the other items we need to find pasukim for, we don't even need a pasuk to tell us that tefillah can be said in any language because rachami he, bakal hechi debayi matzli, right? Like tefillah is the process of asking Hashem for our needs. Um, and so, you know, anything that anytime someone needs to daven, they'll daven, right? In whatever language uh, that they know best. Now, the Gemara is going to challenge this notion that tefillah can be said in any language. But tefillah b'chalashan, can tefillah really be said in any language? Didn't Rabbi Huda say? Right? A person should not ask for his needs, should not daven in lashon aramis, in right the Aramaic language. Rabbi Yochanan, because Rabbi Yochanan said, anyone who asks for their needs in Aramaic, the, the angels don't uh, pay attention to him. Because the literal meaning of this statement is that Malachim, uh, the you know Malachim who are involved with like kind of being the mailman <laughs> and transporting the tefillahs from us to Hashem, uh, don't recognize Aramaic. Okay, yeah. So th- th- this is like a very uh, interesting statement, right? <laughs> what does that mean that they don't they don't know Aramaic? Um, does that mean literal? Does that, is, that, is that metaphorical? So some say that it means literally, right? That the Malachim, the language of the Malachim is, is Hebrew and therefore any other language is not, um, is not, uh, sufficient and and the reason why the Gemara uses the example specifically of Aramaic is because Aramaic is the most similar to Hebrew. So it's saying even Aramaic, which is so similar to Hebrew, even that the Malachim, you know, they, they're not gonna they're not gonna have to process that, right? Others say it doesn't mean literally they don't understand it. Um, what it means is that they they don't like it, right? They're not they're not fond of other languages. So they kind of see it as like not being as like we said discussed in the last stop, um, you know, that, that the Hebrew language is obviously has a lot of subtleties and a lot of nuance, which other languages don't have. And therefore, they're, they don't appreciate the fact that you're davening in a different language. And therefore, they're not going to give the um, tefillahs the proper attention and sort of, you know, won't, won't, it's not going to go as smoothly um, to Hashem, right, so to say. Um, and 
so actually the rush says like we're discussing this practically right we discussed last time a little bit some of the practical application of this about whether a person should actually is allowed to daven in, in uh, other languages or not so the rush actually says that this is talking specifically about aramaic right that the the angels specifically don't like aramaic as opposed to other languages because aramaic is so similar to hebrew and therefore it's almost like a distortion of the hebrew language um and that's why when the gemara says that we shouldn't when we're talking about not happening in in, in in Aramaic, it's not just telling you, you know, even you know, even Aramaic. It's telling us specifically Aramaic because that language, um, you know, the Malachim especially have a problem with because they feel like it's a distortion of Hebrew. But other languages would would theoretically be okay. Wow, that's very fascinating. Um, okay, so I guess according to the rush, you know, English or French or he, you know, whatever language uh, you're most comfortable in would be. Uh, okay. But even beyond this, right, uh, we still need to solve our contradiction, right? The Mishnah seems to list it as an unequivocal statement that you could doubt in any language, whereas um, Rabbi Huda is at least taking one language <laughs> off the table and perhaps all languages, right? Um, so the Gemara says, like Hacha, there's no contradiction. Ha, the Yachid. Uh, when Rabbi Huda says you shouldn't doubt in Aramaic, he's talking about an individual. Habit Seabor, but the Mishnah is talking about when you're davening in a congregation with a minion. Right? Um, and so the idea is, is that when people are davening together, right, that their tefillah is not turned away. There's a greater power in numbers. Um, and that tefillah goes directly to Hashem, uh, and there's no need for intermediaries. Dalgamar is going to question, hey, is it really true that the Malachim don't uh, either like or they don't speak Aramaic. Sorry, so just one, yeah. one note about the idea of Habiyachad um, Habit Sibor. Actually, I saw that there's some Pisces who actually say that that's why, you know, there's certain Aramaic passages like Yukon Porkon, for example, that we only say Bitsibor, right? Like if you're dominating on your own, you don't say those passages for this reason because of um, what the Gemara says here about. about only a yachid um, shouldn't daven in Aramaic. And then there's also a discussion amongst the Pesachim about why are, there are obviously passages in daven that we say that are in Aramaic, right? So why are there the reasons for those exceptions? Anyway, so this has wow. practical, practical ramifications. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Very interesting. Um, so, so yeah, so now the Gemara is going to try to ask, okay, well, who says they don't understand Aramaic in the first place? Actually, we have a brisa which indicates they do understand Aramaic. Vahatanya, don't we have a brisa that states Yechanan Kayan Gadol, Yechanan Kayan Gadol, who uh, he served as a Kayan Gadol in the time of the Hashmanaim, uh, when there was um, a series of wars between uh, the Hashmanaim, the Maccabees, and the Greeks. Um, so Shama. Baskal, we based Kadesh Hakadoshim on Yom Kippur, right? He heard a Baskal come out of the Kadesh Hakadoshim while he was doing his avodah. Shu Imer, and it was saying, "Natzchu Talia de Azlu laAcha Krava laTuchia," that the young men who went to war uh, in Antioch have won um, because there had been young Kohanim right who, are, who had gone to war. Uh, with the Greeks just before Yom Kippur, and on Yom Kippur, on that day, uh, they were successful in battle. Right now, the point is, this statement was said in Aramaic, right? That's the time, that's, those are Aramaic words. Uh, but Shuv Maya said the Shimon Hatzadik, and we have another story with Shimon Hatzadik, also 
also similar situation. You hear the boss will come out of the Kedusha Kedushim. Shehu Imer in this boss call said, The troop that was meant to carry out the t- decree of the enemy of the Jewish people against the Beis HaMekdash has been annulled. V'nerag gasglas u'batlu because uh, Gaskalas, the Roman emperor, was killed and his decrees were annulled. Uh, basically, what had happened is Gaskalas, who I think is Caligula in English, uh, had decreed that an image, uh, a statue in his image, should be placed in the base of Mekdash, which, of course, was a terrible, you know, would be a terrible thing. Um, and on this day, uh, on Yom Kippur, uh, Caligula was assassinated, and thus his decree was uh, annulled. Right? And it says that after Grim Kipper, they like calculated what time this Bosco came out, and it turned out it was exactly the time of the assassination. Right? But anyway, at any rate, the point of the story is that that Bosco also uh, was in Aramaic. Right? The Bosco was speaking in Aramaic. So the Gemara is going to offer two possible solutions. You could say a baskol is different than the standard, you know, procedure, heavenly procedure, <laughs> because baskol, the whole point of a baskol is to communicate uh, with people, right? And so it's going to communicate in the language that people understand. So a baskol, that's kind of the baskol's job. But general malachim do not... Uh, Process Aramaic. The Baisima, and if you want, if you give another answer, Gavriel Hava. This Bosco was said by Gavriel, and we know that in contrast to other Malachim, Gavriel knew Aramaic. It's Amar Mar, as we have, you know, has been taught. Ba Gavriel Valimdu Shivim Lashin. It's the famous Medrash about Yosef Hazadik. It says that um, when Yosef is about to meet Pare, um, Gavriel came and taught him 70 languages. Right, so we just see from that matters that Gabriel obviously knows all languages, and so that was the voice behind the boss call. All right, we're going to keep going uh, down the list of things from the Mishnah. So Berchas Hamazan also could be said in any language. How do we know this? Right, it should eat and be satiated and bless Hashem your God. Which indicates you can bless Hashem in any, in any language that you speak. So a that someone takes, uh, swearing that he does not know testimony about a given situation. Um, so how do we know that such an oath should be done, can be done in the vernacular? So it says, the nefesh Right? So this Pasuk is describing what if somebody swore that he does not know testimony about a certain crime. And then it turns out that, you know, he was lying, Right? Uh, so the Pesach says, if somebody sins in that way and has heard the oath, right, has heard the curse and the oath and any, and nevertheless swore falsely. Um, so the Pesach describes it as Shema Kalala, right? In any language that you hear, right? this mirrors, echoes what we said about Shema, right? We said Shema can be said in any language according to the Chachamim because it says the word Shema here, right? Similar idea. The word Shema indicates any language which can be heard. Shavuot Sapikadan, so right, the oath that a watchman would take, uh, swearing that he no longer has the object he was in touch, he was entrusted with. 
So how do we know this? So Asya Tahta Tahta Bishwas We have Xerishava. The word Tahta is used in the context of Shuas Aidas, which we already proved can be done in any language. And there's also a Pasak regarding Shvuas Hapikadon that uses the word Tahta. I'll just I'll read it out. So it says, Nefesh kisakta umala mal bashem bashikesh ba amisaidu pikadan. Right? If somebody sins and you know transgresses uh and you know betrays Hashem and he denies to his friend that he has his object, right? So we see that same language used, and so therefore we apply the same rules um as Tashwasa Pikadon as Tashuasaidas. The Elunamarin Baleshan Hakaidish, right? So now we're going to focus on the latter part of the Mishnah, right? Which listed the stuff that could only be said in Hebrew. So the Elunamarin Baleshan Hakaidish, Mikr Bikurim, Bachalitza Hulu, Ad Mikr Bikurim Ketzad, Vanisa, Vamar, Amarta Lefei Hashem, Ulahaladu Amar, Vanu Halabim, Vamar, Akali Shishrao, Ma Niyahamur Lahalan Baleshan Hakaidish, Avkad Baleshan Hakaidish, right? So I just read that quickly because it's all a quote from the Mishnah, but basically the Mishnah listed a whole bunch of things which need to be said in Hebrew. Mekar Bikaram, Chalitza. Um, and it said, oh, how do we know that Mekar Bikaram needs to be read in Hebrew? So he said there was a Zira Shaba. The same words are used in the Pasuk about Mekar Bikaram. And it says, Vanisa Vamarta. And it says that in a similar wording in the context of the Brachas and Klalas at Hargrizen. It says, Anu Halavi and Amru. Right? And so just like uh, Hargrizen and Harabal needed to be said in Hebrew, so too, Mikr Bikur must be said in Hebrew. And we did a similar thing for like almost all of the things on that list, right? The similar Gezer Sheva uh, from Hargrizim and Harabal. So now the Gemara says, wait a second. Right? How do we know? We keep, we keep like referring back to this example. Like, of course, the Levim had to speak in Hebrew. But how do we know that? How do we know the Levim themselves needed to speak in Hebrew? So the Gemara said, Asya kol kol There's another Zereshava uh, using the word kol from the context of Maisha Rabbeinu, speaking to Hashem. So it says, Ksib hacha kol ram. So it says in the context of the Levim, V'anu ha-Levim v'amru el kol ish Yisrael kol ram. The Levim declared to all of the men of the Jewish people in a loud voice. Um, Uksiv Hasam, and it says over there, right in the in Matantara, Maisha Yadaber Velakimya Nanu Bekol, right? Moshe would speak, and Hashem would answer in a loud voice. So, Mala Halam Blashakadish, just like Amon Torah, it was said in Hebrew. Avkan Blashakadish, so too, Levium needed to speak in Hebrew, right? Um, so, Chalitza Ketzad. So we, just a reminder from the Mishnah, we had a difference of opinion about how we know the script, right, that the woman and her, you know, former husband's brother need to say during the chalitza process must be done in Hebrew. Um, so the Chachanan believed that the proof was the same as, you know, as the proof for Mekri that because it says the Ansa Ha'isha Amra uses the, that formula, and the Pasuk, it Refers back, there's Xerah Sheva between Chalitza and the Levium and Hargrizim and Harabel. But there's a difference of opinion. Rabbi Yehuda believed there was a different way of learning that same halacha. And they said because the Pasuk says um, the woman should say, Kacha, 
Yes, I should say, everyone should say like this. And because it uses the word kaka, that implies the woman needs to say the words like this exactly as they're written in the Pasuk and not any other way. Right, so the Gemara, what the Gemara is now going to do is it's going to try to analyze, well, why did the Hasamim have one? Well, what's the root of their disagreement? And how would each side respond to the arguments of the other side? Right, so we're going to start with the side of the Hasamim, and the Gemara is going to ask, okay, for a like, Rabbi Yehuda made a good point, right? The word kaka does indicate that the, you know, does indicate something, right? So, Verbanan, hi kaka, my abdulai. How do they interpret the word kaka? If they don't interpret the word kaka um, to teach the halakha of needing to say the words in Hebrew, like Rabbi Yehuda, how do they interpret it? So, the Gemara answers, maisa. Um, they they interpret the word kaka as saying that um, all of the actions listed in the pasuk, such as that the woman needs to take off, um, take the you know sorry the yeah the woman needs to take off the band shoe and that she needs to spit on the ground right all of those things must be done exactly in that matter otherwise the octave uh, the ceremony is invalid. So Burbi Huda. So now we say okay. How does Rabbi Yehuda learn that all of the actions must be done in that particular matter? So that Mikai Kacha, Rabbi Yehuda said, the Pasa could have said Kayasa, right? It didn't say, instead of saying Kayasa, it says Kachayasa. So because there's both an extra word and an extra letter Chaf, you can learn two Halachas out of that same word. And so Rabbi Yehuda learns both that the words must be said in Hebrew and that the actions must be done in that exact matter. The Rabbanan think that that extra kaf in the word kaka is not worthy of, of interpretation and it's not significant enough to derive an extra halakha. Okay, so now we've explored the, the side of the Rabbanan. So now we're going to shift to Rabbi Yehuda. We're going to say, well, how, how do we who to respond to the Chachamim? Verbi Huda, hi ba'ansa ba'amra my avid like Huda explain the fact that it's that that it the, uses the word ba'ansa ba'amra. Um, like the Chachamim said, the Chachamim said the words ba'ansa ba'amra refer to you know it's a teacher of the halacha of needing to say it in Hebrew, but Rabbi Huda doesn't need these words to teach us that halakha. So he has these extra words in the Pasuk, which he effectively has no explanation for. So my Abedli, what does he do with it? So the Gemara says, um, he interpret he needs these words and interprets them. So this is a this is a surprising answer. It says Rabbi Huda believes and needs to use the words to teach you that the Levim uh, needed to say the words at Hargrizim and Harival in Hebrew. <laughs> Wait a second. We've been saying this whole time that we know for sure the Levian, right, said it in Hebrew because of the Gezer Shava with Kol and Kol with Maisha. And we use the Levian as like the prototype to learn to all the other cases. And Rehuda is doing the exact opposite. He's saying, no, we're, we know for sure um, because of the word kaka, you need to say halitza in Hebrew. And it's the Leviam, the story, which needs to learn from halitza. So what's going on here? Like Amara asked, why does Rehuda believe that you would know that the Leviam spoke in Hebrew because of the Gezer Shaba using the word kal from the story of Maisha Rebbeinim? Um, 
So, Silicamara so says, Ania, Ania Gamir. Um, Rabbi Huda um, had received a tradition from his teacher that the words Ania and Ania form Xerashaba, but he hadn't learned from his teacher that the word kol forms Xerashaba. Rashi introduces us to an interesting principle, the idea that um, you can't just sit down with the Chumash and find two words that are similar in two different second and say, oh, it's Xerashaba. We should learn how we could, she could pair the uh, halachas between these two places. Um, as, as you can imagine, if one were to do that, you could end up making all sorts of crazy connections, right? Words right, are used also, what halakas do you learn from those right, words? So right? there's an idea. You have to have a tradition from your teacher. Um, Atana would have to have a tradition from his teacher that two words that are in two different, that a, a single word that's in two different places are here to teach us something. He wouldn't necessarily know what the words are there to teach us. But he would know, okay, the word Ania in this place and Ania in that place is there to teach us something. I don't necessarily know what it's teaching me. That's what I have to figure out. But I have a tradition that these two words, that, like these two places having the same word has significance, right? So since Rabbi Yehuda had a tradition that Ania and Ania in these two places are significant, um, he was able to use that as Xerashaba. But he never learned from his teacher. He never had the tradition of call call, and therefore he could not use that as Xerashaba. A very yeah, find it kind of very fascinating and also a foundational point because I feel sometimes you know you'll learn a series of Xerashabas and it feels like oh like it's, you know almost arbitrary like how you decide right. which significance. Um, and so it's important to realize that you know people weren't they weren't pulling Xerashabas out of a hat. They weren't you know they. There was a tradition that handed down which words were significant, and the work that was done was merely attaching, you know, filling in the blanks of the significance of um, of the Xerashava, but not which words are related. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so Tanya Nami Hafi, we have a Brisa which supports um, that which we just said. Uh, it supports the idea that Rabbi Yehuda only... Um, use the words ania and uh, as ex- and and kai for purposes of Zereshava, but he did not use the word call. So Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Huda said, "Call makayim shenamar kai kacha ania vamira inay alalashna kadesh." He said that any place in the Torah you see the word kai or the word kacha or the language of ania and amira, it means that it can't be said uh, any language other than lashna kadesh. Um, so for example, Kai or Kaisavarhu, um, right? So the Kaisavarhu of like Birks Kahanim, Kaka de Halitza, right? The Kaka, uh, that's said in the part of Halitza, the Ania of Amira de Levium, and the Ania of Amira of the Levium, right? So we see that on his list of words, which indicate Lashna Kaidash, the word Kol is not on that list because as we said, he never had that tradition. Okay, so... Now we're going to move on to the last part of the Mishnah, which since we talked so much about the Brachas and Kolos, the hard reason, the Mishnah just describes the process uh, of how that um, ceremony took place. So the Mishnah is that Brachas for Kolos Ketzad came into Avar Yisrael as Haryard and Hulu. So it says Brachas and Kolos took place after the Jewish people uh, crossed the Yarding. So the Gemara now is going to interpret a pasuk um, in Sefer Zevarim, which describes 
um, sort of it's giving directions to the Jewish people of how to find her grism and her evil. So, so the Gemara says, so the Pasuk is, um, I'm just going to read the full Pasuk. It doesn't quote the whole Pasuk here, but I'll just read the full Pasuk because it'll be relevant later. So it says, are, aren't they the two mountains of Har Grizim and Har Ebal on the other side of the Yardin? Um, opposite the, the path of the sun, the Eretz Haknani, in the Eretz Haknani, which dwells in the plain, Mulha Gilgal, opposite Gilgal, right next to Elenimeira, right? So it's a Pasuk that gives lots and lots of geographical landmarks. So, um, so now we're gonna, the Gemara is going to do is it's going to interpret each landmark in the Pasuk so we can really narrow, like, zoom in on exactly where Har Grizim and Har Abel are. So, Tanu Rabbanan, we've learned in Ebrisa, Elu Hema Be'ever Yardin. So these mountains, sorry, Hello Hema Be'ever these mountains are on the other side of the Yardin. Um, so Me'ever Yardin Be'elich Divrei Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda's view uh, is that the words Be'ever Yardin means far across the Yardin River, right? It's not right there when you cross the Yardin. You have to travel uh, some distance. Right, so opposite the, the path of the sun. So where Yehuda believes, Mavai Hashemesh means Makim Shachamazarachas. It means the place that a sun rises. So Mavai Rashi says means it's far from. So opposite or like opposite. So opposite the way the sun sets would be west. So it's further west over the Yardin. The Eretz Hakanani. Um, so it's in the land of the Kanani in the plain. So this is the Har Grizim and Har Ebal where the Kutim dwell. Um, so we're gonna the Kutim, and we mentioned them before, they're called the Samaritans in English. Um, they were a non Jewish nation, um, that was when son, uh, when um, when the northern portion of Eretz Yisrael was conquered by Sancheriv. Um, the 10 tribes were exiled and Sancheriv brought these Assyrian peoples to dwell in the in that portion of Eretz Yisrael in their place. One of those nations was the nation of Kuta. So that's where the Kutim get their name. Um, they dwelled in the Shomron or Samaria. That's, we know why they're called Samaritans. Um, and these peoples initially converted to Judaism, but over time they rejected Torah Shabalpa. They only kept Torah Shabbat. Um, and they considered Har Grizim and Har Grizim to be their holy mountain, right? Instead of Har Moria and Yerushalayim being the holy place, they considered Har Grizim to be their holy mountain. Um, and they also had the image of a dove, which they worshipped, right? So it was kind of like a mix between Judaism and like their idolatrous roots. Um, so anyways, where Yehuda is saying, we're going to get back to the Kutim later. That's So just keep that information in mind for later. Um, but where Yehuda is saying, the Har Grizim and Har Eba, where the Kutim dwell, right, where, you know, which are popularly, you know, identified as Har Grizim and Har Eba, that's what the uh, Pasuk is talking about. Mul Gilgal, it's um, opposite Gilgal, Samach Gilgal, right near the Gilgal. Itzel Elone Mamre, um, right next to Elone, sorry, not Elone Mamre, Eitzel Elone More, right, right near the plains of Mora. Shcheh, that is the city of Shem. How do we know this? 
earlier in the Torah and Kamish it says, says Avram, you know, passed through the land and he got to Shem until Elon Morris. So Ma Elon Mori Amar Lahal and Shem, just like in the Pasuk about Abraham, it's clear that Elon Mora and Shem are the same place. Afkan Shem, so too the Elon Mora, which is mentioned in Chumash Shem is talking about Shem. So, okay, so Tanya Amar Rabbi Lazar Barabiosi. So there's a bright side in which Rabbi Lazar Barabiosi said, but Dabrin Zah with this like teaching, with this limud um, about like identifying where Hargrism is, um, the Yaftem Tarasem. Sorry, the Yafta the Yafti Sifre Kutim. I proved that the Sifre Torah of the Kutim were forgeries. Right? So as we said before, the Kutim did not believe in Torah Shabal Peh, right? They only believe in Torah Shabakhsab. The problem is if you read the Torah Shabakhsab, and as we said, their holy mountain was Hargrism. The only problem is if you read the Pasuk, it's actually not so clear which mountain is being referred to. As we're going to see in a second, there are other interpretations of how this Pasuk can be read, right? So how, so the, it says actually that the Kutim, in order to kind of uh, fix, you know, kind of, you know, identify where the mountain is, they actually added words into their Sifri Torah, and they added the words next to Eitzel Eloni Mora, they wrote Eitzel Shem, right, sort of identifying that their mountain of Hargrizim was next to Shem, because they couldn't, like, admit that they were relying on this oral tradition of Chazal, that Elon Mora was Shem. Um, they needed to, you know, they could only rely on things in the text of the Sifri Torah. But also they wanted to identify where Hargrizim was. So they wrote the word Shem in their Sifri Torah in order to say, oh, look, we're just following the text. We're just, we're just, you know, we're identifying Hargrizim near Shem because that's what it says in the Pasuk. Right. So uh, Rebeleza Rubiosi said, I told them, I told the Kutim, Amarfi Lehem, Ziafim Terafim, Bolo Elisa Biatam Klum. You have forged your Sifri Torah and it hasn't helped you at all. Sha'atim Omrim Eloni Mori Shem. Because you say Eloni Mori is right near Shem, and that's where Hargrizim is. We also agree that Eloni Mori is Shem. We learned it from Exera Shabbat because it says Eloni Mamre in the context of Abram Avinu, and it says Eloni Mora here. Atem, but you. You reject the Torah Shabbat. You don't believe in things like Exera Shabbat, but Malamaditem. So how did you know that Shem, that Hargrizim was near Shem, right? So that was the proof of Elazar Berbiosi. Uh, now, as we're going to see, this whole um, identification of Hargrizim and Har Ebal, that was all the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, right? So Rabbi Yehuda believed that Hargrizim in the Torah is the mountain popularly defined as Hargrizim. Rabbi Elazar disagrees. Uh, Rabbi Elazar, oh, Rabbi Elazar said, um, these mountains of Hargrizim and Har Ebal are different mountains. Uh, which are not the ones that are popularly called Hargrizim. So and he's going to interpret the landmarks in the Pasuk differently. So he said, The Pasuk said the mountains are on the other side of the Yardin. Rebbe said that means It means right next to the Yardin. The Imi Averly Arden Ve'elef, because if these mountains were so far from the Averly Yardin, it says, like immediately after you cross the Yardin, 
you should go to her Grism and her Abel, meaning like on that same day. According to Rabbi Yehuda, there would have to been a miraculous like shortening of the path so they could make the long journey from the Yardane to Shnef, right? So Belazar said the simple reading of the Pasuk is that we're talking about mountains that are really right there, uh, right on the other side of the Yardane. Um, Rabbi Lezer is going to continue interpreting the Pasuk. Um, right opposite the path of the sun. So he believes means the place the sun sets. So if it's opposite that place, that means east, right? Very close to the Yardin. Um, um, so now, now what Rabbi Lezer is going to do is he's going to ask a number of questions on his opinion, right? So he believes the mountains are right there next to the Yardin. This view uh, seems to be in conflict with the end of the Pesach, right? Because the Pesach says the Eretz HaKnani, Eretz Chivihi, right? Okay, but then the Pesach says in Eretz HaKnani, the land right next to the Yardin is Eretz Chivi. That's what that is in the plain. Right? The when right when you cross the Yardane, it's not in a plain, not in flat land. That's actually between mountains and hills. Uh, and the end of the Pesach says, Hey, Yosh and Mo Gilgal. Uh, it's this is right opposite Gilgal, but like Ragwest Gilgal, you can't see Gilgal from there, right? So Rebelezer doesn't answer his own questions, but Rebelezer ben Yaakov is going to answer these questions. So Rebelezer ben Yaakov, Omer, Rebelezer ben Yaakov said, these last three landmarks in the Pasuk, that is Eretz HaKnani, Yeshev Rava, and Mul Gilgal, aren't there to tell you where Hargrizim and Har Abel are. They're there to teach something else, right? So you kind of have to like put a pause in the Pasuk. Hargrizim and Har Abel are right on the other side of the Yardin, you know, to the east. And then the rest of the Pasuk is an entirely separate message. So Lai Baha Kasav Alalaharis Lahan Derek Bashnia Kaderik Laher Lahan Barishina. This latter half of the Pasuk is showing the Jewish people the way, the path they should take going into Eretz Israel this second time, just like he showed them the first time. Right? What does this mean? The first time means when they came out of Mitzrayim. When they came out of Mitzrayim, Hashem led the Jewish people with a cloud, or right? the cloud showed them where to go. Um, and now the second time there would be no cloud to lead them because Maisha was going to pass away before they entered Eretz Yisrael. And with Maisha's death, the cloud would no longer be visible. And so Hashem is saying, okay, you know what? I want I want to leave you. Just like I led you out of Egypt, I want to lead you into Eretz Yisrael. There won't be a cloud to lead you in, but I'm going to give you directions of how to travel. Okay, so the so now we're below there been Yaakov is going to show how each word in the second half of the Pesach is, is doing that. So, derech, it says derech, but derech lehu, lobas kramen, right? So, Shem is saying, the Jewish people should travel on a path, not through fields and vineyards. Hayeshev, right? Um, so, those who, that hayeshev, right, that dwells, beyeshev lehu, beloved travel through populated areas and not in the deserts. Ba'arava, in the plain, Go in flat, open land, not through the hills and the valleys. So, so this uh, this explanation, right, is uh, you know it seems very nice that you know just randomly in the middle of the pasuk we just stop describing where Hagrid and Haribel are and we just start talking about you know instructions for how to go um, to Um 
it just seems a little random, right? What's the connection to Hargreaves and Harewell? So the Kliakar actually has a really nice explanation on this. And he says that really what this, the, the connection of this, this instruction to Hargreaves and Harewell is that it's really sort of a metaphor um, to tell us and who is going to receive these blessings that they got in Hagris and Har'Ebel is three types of people. And each of these instructions telling them how to go into, into Artistral, um, are really three t- instructions to three different types of people that, um, how they can sort of, um, what path they need to take in order to receive these blessings. So what do these represent? So what does he, what does he say here? The first, the first word in the Pasuk is, um, you should go, uh, uh, he says, right? You should go on the path. Don't go, don't get distracted in the fields and the vineyards, right? So he says that's referring to the first category of Jews, which is the people who are involved in Torah learning, people who are dedicating themselves to spiritual matters. And he says for, for them, the, the instruction the Torah is giving to them, if they want to receive these blessings, is not to get distracted in the fields, right? Not to get involved in the sort of worldly, um, earthly concerns, but to sort of stay focused on their their spiritual pursuit of, of Torah learning. What's the second instruction? The second instruction is... Um, Sorry, right? You should go through the the inhab, you know, uh, inhabited land and not through the uh, deserts, right? So what that's talking about is people who are not able or not meant to be involved in tar learning all day, but they're in business, right? They're sort of, you know, involved in, in more, um, you know, worldly matters. That's sort of what their mission in the world is, is to be involved in, in business. And for them, the instruction to them is that you should be, in, you should occupy yourself with product productive things, right? Like your, your mission is to engage in the world and engage with materialistic, you know, material reality. But it should be productive and it should be with a purpose as opposed to the desert, right? The desert sort of represents a place which is desolate. It has n- nothing grows there, right? It's empty. Um, so that sort of represents, you know, getting distracted by meaningless or empty, empty behaviors like gossip or, you know, other meaningless things. So for the person who's, who is meant to be involved in more worldly affairs, the instruction to them is not to get distracted by the midbar, right? Don't get Involved, don't uh, get distracted by being involved in meaningless, empty, um, empty behaviors. Um, and finally, the third instruction here is uh, uh, right? Go on the plain and not on the, the mountains. And that's an instruction to the leaders that the leaders of the Jewish people for them, the instruction to them is not to raise themselves up like a mountain but instead they should have like a sort of a lead the Jewish people with a sense of humility. Um, so it, the Kliakar says, of course, this passage is also literal, right? And the Gemara is here saying is obviously, it's also telling us practically how the Jewish people should go into the land. But the fact that the Pasuk sort of is repeating these instructions um, that they already knew is to tell us that there's something sort of deeper here. It's a deeper message about um, what it, what it, what, you know, each group of people need to do in order to receive the blessings of Hagarizim and Haribal. <laughs> Wow, that's great. So now the Gemara is going to continue on, um, continue kind of like the storyline, right? So we just talked about where Hargrizim and Har Abel are, and now we're going to talk about how they actually 
across the yard and towards these mountains. So Tani Rabbanon were taught in a brisa. Kitzad Aber Yisrael at the Yarden. How did the Jewish people cross the Yarden? Bechol Yaim Aaron Isaya Achar Shnei Degalim. So usually, when the Jewish people traveled, the Aaron would be carried, um, and the place of the Aaron would be after the first two flags, the first two Shpatim. Um, but in this day, today, when they crossed the Yarden, the Aaron traveled first. Before the entire Jewish people. Right, it says in Sefer Yahushua, right, behold, the Aaron, um, which like houses, right, the Shina, the master of the whole world, is passing before you. Um, another difference between today, <laughs> that day, and all other days. So at most days, every day, the Levian would carry the iron. That was their job. But today, the Kahanam carried them. When the the heels or the the bottoms of the feet of the Kahanam reached the Yardane, that's when the Yardane split. The Kahanam who were carrying the iron reached the Yardin. That's when the Yardin split. Tanya, we learned the Barsa of Riyosi. I'm Riyosi said, So there are three times we have this unusual occurrence where the Kahanim are carrying the, the Aran rather than the Libyan. The first time is right now, when they crossed the Yardin. Second time, when they surrounded Yurichai and they, you know, and ultimately the walls Right, came tumbling down, um, and they conquered it. And when Shlomo HaMelech returned the Aron to the Kadesh HaKadashim in the base of Mekdash for many years, uh, since it was exiled, it was captured by the Plishtim in the days of Eli, it was not in the Mishkan or the base of Mekdash, right? They eventually did get it back some t- a few years, like some couple decades later, but um, even then, it was kind of it was housed, it was not housed in the Kaidah Shekhardashim. And Shlomo Amalek, when the Beit Shemesh was built, returned it. Um, so that was the third and final time that the Beit that the Aron was carried by the Kahanim. So that's a wrap on Daf Lama Gimel, and we'll see you tomorrow. Yep, see you tomorrow for Daf Lama Dalet. Thanks for listening.